0: So, surprise, surprise! Dress listeners. <laughs> Dressed is, of course, technically on hiatus for a couple of months, but that does not mean that we forgot to get our listeners something for the holidays. And, of course, not all of our listeners celebrate holidays in the month
1: of December, but for those of you who do, we bring you an extra special holiday bonus edition of Fashion History Mystery.
0: And Cass, I want to know, what are your holiday plans? Have you decorated? I mean, tell me everything. <laughs> well, Christmas has
1: officially exploded in the Zachary Garcia household. We take christmas very seriously as to do our dogs bella and muffin muffin has actually been obsessed quite obsessed with trying to eat slash befriend our various santas that have been set up throughout the house <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course she has
1: santa's delicious <laughs> yeah and as custom for sean and i we have been obsessively watching all of our favorite holiday movies
0: i am curious
1: april if you have a favorite holiday movie
0: um, I'm sad to say I haven't seen very many holiday movies, perhaps Home Alone. Um, some of our usual listeners will remember that I was actually born and raised in a religious cult, and Christmas was considered, like, ultra pagan. So, any of those movies that a lot of people grew up watching, I simply was like forbidden to watch like so much so that like if there was a holiday Christmas party being thrown in our classroom even when I was in grade school, my parents would come and take me out of school. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I can compile a list for you
1: if you do the James Bond movies for me, I will do my favorite Christmas holiday movies for
0: you. Done deal.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Home Alone. That, of course, is a favorite. But I actually, I wanted to mention uh, a movie that our listeners are probably familiar with, White Christmas. Because if you're going to specifically talk about fashion history and holiday movies, then this one stands out above all the rest. It's on Netflix. And it has costume designs by none other than Edith Head. And this movie does not disappoint. There are these insane dance numbers, all of these crazy, beautiful costumes, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it to put some fashion history into your holiday cheer dress listeners. And April, what
0: about you? Well, I might not have seen all these holiday movies, but I do have a tree up this year. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, as you know, I think a lot about sustainability. So I have the same tree every year, and it's one of those really fabulous silver aluminum trees from the yes. 1950s and it has that rotating color wheel of light that comes up from below. This specific type of tree can't really support ornaments though because the branches aren't um, strong enough to do so, so the 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 light wheel is kind of like what gives it its you know extra special you know glitz and glamour, and, and this is absolutely fine with me because this also means that there is no glitter from ornaments to clean up come January. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it is the glitteriest
1: season of the year, which I absolutely love. I love all things sparkle. So from ornaments to cars to glittered wrapping paper and bows, it's practically impossible to avoid the unenviable task of removing glitter from, you know, your clothing, your car, your home, your hair, your life, because as we all know, not only does glitter get everywhere, it stays everywhere.
0: Yeah, and you're definitely not kidding about that because a few years ago, we threw a huge Halloween party at our apartment here in New York, and one of my friends showed up head-to-toe dressed as a red chili pepper, you know, that kind of costume where you're, like, actually inside the whole suit. And he looked adorable, except there was one problem, and that was the entire costume cast was covered in glitter. Oh, like no. So, obviously, mostly red glitter, but then also some green glitter. And when he walked in, I gave him a hug to say hello, and then I whispered in his ear, don't you dare sit on my 1957 sofa. I love you, (laughs) but don't do it. So kindly, he did not. We found a really lovely aluminum chair for him. But uh, five years later, I was still finding red glitter. I bet you were. And one
1: (laughs) might ask oneself, why do we do this to ourselves? Well, let's face it. Glitter is mesmerizing. It gleams, it shimmers, it glints. Qualities that seem to be innately attractive to human beings. And actually, some scientists have hypothesized that our attraction to sparkly substances might in fact be linked to the need to seek out sources of fresh water, which is so fascinating And it makes perfect sense. When early humans were migratory, the shimmer of water far off on the horizon was surely a thrilling
0: sight. Mm -hmm. So basically from the dawn of time, sparkly substances have been sought out and even revered by human beings. You know, precious metals, gems, and lustrous minerals have held this sort of mystical draw for cultures throughout history, and this is something that I learned researching this episode. Archaeologists have even proven that the ancient Mayans incorporated the reflective mineral mica in the paint that they used to coat their temples, their ceremonial masks, and which basically gave them like this kind of otherworldly shimmer, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah, so fast forward a millennia or so and the desire to sparkle, it has been and is still alive and well. And as fashion historian Nancy Deal has noted, quote, I know we have this idea of the past that they weren't sparkly, Deal says, but they love to put little bits of metal on things, end quote. So for instance, during the Middle Ages, one of the most luxurious textiles you could acquire, well, it was cloth of gold, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was created painstakingly by hand-wrapping the warp and weft yarns in these incredibly thin strips of real gold. And this was before the yarns were mounted on the looms. And the results are a woven textile with a surface of precious gold.
0: Likewise, Tudor fashions of the 16th century frequently incorporated these little bits and baubles of metals. You know, sometimes it would be silver, sometimes it would be pewter. Like, this was all according to your own personal income. But they were sewn Actually, onto the garments, which is, is interesting because under the candlelight of the era, that's when they would kind of like gleam and glint. Ooh. And moving forward in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, we also see the use of lame on embroidered garments. And lame being a metal wrapped thread, very similar to the process used to make cloth of gold um, sometime earlier. So Basically, just to kind of sum up, these shimmering styles or the desire to shimmer on your garments is omnipresent throughout the history of fashion. And in the early 20th century, this you know, still continued, but shifted towards the use of glass beads and also sequins.
1: And I'd never actually really given much thought to the similar technical properties between sequins and glitter, for instance, which is something that we will get to here in a second. But first, I'd like to quote our friend Nancy Deal again when she made this astute observation. She said, glitter is all about evoking jewels or metal. And jewels and precious metals being costly throughout history, they remain signifiers of wealth,
0: power, status, and, of course, glamour. So, how did we get from the pursuit of shine in terms of these, you know, rarefied luxury materials to the cheap glitter substitute which fulfills our glitzy cravings today? Well... That all has to do with industrialization and very specific developments in technology. And I do think, Cass, um, as you just mentioned, this relationship between sequins and glitter, I I think it's important to mention. I would perhaps classify them as cousins in terms of their modern-day production. You know, early on in terms of sequins, and when I say early on, I mean as early as ancient Egypt because gold sequins were found in the tomb of King Tut. Early on, sequins were basically just discs punched out of thin sheets of metal, precious or otherwise. And even Leonardo da Vinci drafted a design for a sequin punch machine, although it is not known if the machine was actually realized or not.
1: That little tidbit you just said about da Vinci is incredibly fascinating. I had never heard of that before. And I I find that amazing.
0: I do a deep dive sometimes.
1: (laughs) So during the 1920s, we see a shift away from real metal sequins to painted sequins. And these are made from animal gelatin, which while cheaper to produce also meant that they were subject to degrade under heat and moisture. File that away in your brain just listeners, because we are going to come back to it in the context of glitter later. Today, however, sequins are made out of a variety of materials, including metal and plastics.
0: Yeah, I would say most commonly plastics, but there are still metal sequins today. But back into our tale of glitter specifically, now enter the gentleman... Henry Roushman, who was a German immigrant to the United States, and in 1934 he developed a machine which basically ground plastics in a manner which created reflective properties. And his New Jersey-based company Meadowbrook Inventions to this day remains, as they declare on their website, "quote the world's leading glitter manufacturer, distributor, and exporter." And one that is apparently
1: incredibly secretive, so much so that when New York Times writer Katie Weaver was undertaking a deep dive into the glitter industry, this is very recent, she did this for an article in 2018, Meadowbrook actually denied her request for an interview responding, quote, we are a very private company. So it seems that the trade secrets of the glitter industry are actually closely guarded, and perhaps this is because of Meadowbrook's proximity to the second largest glitter manufacturer in the world, Glitterex,
0: which is also in, you guessed it, New Jersey. Of course it is. (laughs) Um, So in her article, Weaver writes about these security restrictions that are at Glitterex, which was founded in 1963. And for the last 20 years or so, the company has been headed by Babu Shetty, who holds a PhD in polymer science and engineering. And when she spoke to Mr. Shetty on the phone, she says, quote— he did not want me to visit his glitter factory. The jovial Mr. Shetty told me over the phone that people have no idea of the scientific knowledge required to produce glitter, that Glitterex's glitter-making technology is some of the most advanced in the world, that people don't believe how complicated it is, and that he would not allow me to see glitter being made, that he would not allow me to hear Glitter being made, (laughs) that I could not even be in the same wing of the building as the room in which glitter was being made under any circumstance, and also that Glitterex's clients are not permitted to see their own glitter being made; that he would not reveal the identities of Glitterex's clients. End quote. Wow! (laughs) I know. Who knew? Who knew this was like some James Bond style?
1: Business in the glitter industry. It does leave a little bit of mystique and even magic. It maintains this kind of magical quality if you have no idea how glitter is being made. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what he did agree to is for her to come to their headquarters and view other aspects of their operations. So we are incredibly lucky for that.
0: Yeah, and i just like to interject really quick here that I was quite surprised when I started – researching the history of glitter that there's this huge gap in any sort of like scholarly work on the topic. So Katie Weaver's really wonderful journalistic investigation and her comprehensive article on the subject were immensely helpful, and this is where we got a great deal of um, the technical information about how glitter is made today. So Katie, I'm officially citing you as a source. So sorry for this brief interlude, Cass. Please, please take it away. (gasps) Yes, so technically
1: speaking, to say making glitter is complicated is a bit of an understatement. So the majority of glitter today is made from a base of plastic, typically mylar, and depositing the color on the clear mylar is an engineering feat that involves metallicizing it on both sides without the use of an adhesive. So think about that, people. (laughs) Adhesive apparently could potentially lead to the color flaking from the mylar. So instead, the GlitterX uses an evaporation process. Ultra thin sheets of colored aluminum are sandwiched between this mylar substrate, and then they are then placed into a vacuum chamber. Heat plus vacuum suction evaporates the aluminum, leaving only the color deposited on the surface of the mylar. You know, just a simple process. <laughs>
0: Okay, I have to say, when I first started, like, learning about this, I have now mad new respect for glitter and, like, how it's made. So this is not to mention the fact that the various colors, the shapes, the textures, the, the variants and reflective qualities, they all have their own very individual technical specifications. So this kind of blew my mind. Iridescent glitter— requires 233 layers of polymer film. Whoa. Each layer has its own different refractive index to create that very specific multicolored effect that you see when you view it from different angles. I mean this is this is <laughs> hardcore science. Yeah. That's going into making <laughs> glitter.
1: And who said fashion was frivolous?
0: Yeah. So, then you
1: have the demands of specific applications of the end product. So, both Meadowbrook and GlitterX create glitter products for use across a myriad of industries. We all know craft glitter for sure, and many of us use cosmetic products which contain glitter. Cosmetic glitter uses the smallest, finest of particles of any grade of glitter. So it's very much its own animal. But other grades of glitter include its use for incorporation into inks, paints, glues. You have thermoplastics that contain glitter. They use aluminum glitter instead of plastic, as aluminum resists temperatures up to 550 degrees Fahrenheit. You have gel coats for cars and motorcycles that have these distinct technical specifications, as does fiberglass that contains glitter. So think hot tubs and boats.
0: I mean, this is basically an entire universe that I have never really given any thought to until recently. And, Cass, I have to tell you about the strangest application for glitter that I read about. It was rather short lived and thankfully an unenacted plot by the United States Army to shoot glitter out of planes during World War II to disrupt enemy radar. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know and and I have to be 100% honest. I was not able to 100% verify this for certain but the the use of glitter from military applications is just too good not to mention, um, even if it is only an urban myth. So we'll throw it out there. We'll throw it out there with a question mark on it. Right. And
1: it does bring up a good point. I mean, where would all of this glitter go if it was shot out of planes during World War II? I mean, we're talking about a proliferation of plastics and metal particles on a teensy, tiny scale. We've already spoken about the difficulty of removing glitter on a personal level, but... Just think about shooting massive amounts of glitter out of planes. It would end up scattered across land and sea. And dress listeners, we are going to talk more about the environmental impact of glitter right after this brief sponsor break.
0: Welcome back, friends. I'm afraid that I have a bit of heartbreaking news for you all. Glitter is bad Bad, bad for the environment. The aluminum-metallicized polyethylene terephthalate, from which most glitter is made, takes an estimated 1,000 years to degrade. Oh, boy. So – It's also a microplastic, which is a major source of ocean pollution, as we all probably already know. And if that is not enough, uh, for her article, Katie Weaver spoke to Dr. Victoria Miller, who is a materials science professor at the North Carolina State University, who pointed out even further that mylar, being a plastic, is, of course, sourced from non-renewable fossil fuels. So... I'm not trying to rain on your parade. I'm not trying to rain on your glitter parade. I promise, (laughs) dress listeners. I'm going to be a bit of a Debbie Downer um, in terms of that. But I will say that there is hope, so fear not. That's right. You indeed, you and I,
1: because I am a personal huge fan of glitter, (laughs) can still indulge all of your glitter fantasies responsibly. Please allow April and I to introduce you all to Biodegradable glitter! So remember the part earlier when I said to store that little tidbit about gelatin sequins away in your brain? Well, we've come full circle and back to Henry Rushman of Meadowbrook Inventions. While it may have been his plastic grinding machine that catapulted his glitter company to success, his earliest experiments used a plant-based cellulose as the base materials for sequins, which, much like gelatin, is entirely biodegradable. And of course, unlike gelatin, it does not harm animals in the process. So Meadowbrook has now revived its ecosystem eco-friendly glitter line, which they call BioJewels.
0: Oh, and here in New York, this whole eco-glitter thing, it's a big thing because many burlesque clubs and entertainment venues which regularly use large quantities of glitter, they have been loudly and proudly switching over to using biodegradable glitter, which I think is great. And I'm also happy to say that biodegradable glitter is readily available to all of our listeners on the commercial market. Companies like Eco Stardust and Glitter Revolution purvey their wares online, so you can just type in Eco Stardust or Glitter Revolution into Google, and their websites will come up. And um, the majority of this, they're they're really made from plant based cellulose with eucalyptus pulp being a major ingredient of this. And this biodegradable glitter that is out on the market now, it breaks down in both wastewater, so you don't have to worry about cleaning it up from your kids and like rinsing out the sponge and and, and putting it into the sink, but also marine environments like the ocean. And in addition to this, it's almost always vegan. So are you a big
1: fan of sparkly cosmetics? Well, you have Eco Stardust and Glitter Revolution products are cosmetic grades. You can use them for any and all crafting applications as well as applying them directly to your skin. And then you have the UK-based company Lush, of which both April and I are huge fans. Huge fans. Yeah, love, love, love Lush products. And they've never used plastic-based glitter in their products. Instead, preferring to use the naturally occurring mineral mica and the same source of sparkle used by the ancient Mayans. And, However, while mica is a naturally occurring mineral, the mica mining industry is plagued with human rights abuses, particularly in terms of child labor. So, you know, we got to give Lush profs because they worked with an NGO which provided regular third-party independent audits to their mining operations. So this really helped verify their strict, Lush's strict policy against hiring child laborers. But after a portion of that NGO was sold, the new owners would not apply hold the same stringent levels of production
0: transparency. And this is the point when Lush turned to the lab to produce synthetic mica, which is still entirely mineral-based and 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 actually requires Cas less processing than natural mica for its use in cosmetics because they can kind of control it a little bit better. So I just want to say cheers to Lush for that. I've always also been a big fan of the company's commitment to environmental causes and also their political activism. So if you don't know this company, go out, check it out. They're not advertising on our show right now, but they should. <laughs>
1: So to our listener, Riley Miles, who submitted this question about the history of glitter to us
0: some months back. Yeah, because we've totally been saving this one for the holidays.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Riley, we hope this answered your question. That does it for our holiday bonus edition of Fashion History Mystery. We will be back to our regular scheduled season the first week of February. But in the meantime, if you'd like to submit a question for a future Fashion History Mystery... Feel free to message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast,
0: or you can also email us, of course, at dresspodcast at iheartmedia.com. Happy holidays to all of our listeners who are celebrating this December season and our best wishes for the new year. Everyone, please, please, please travel safe and don't be afraid to incorporate a little sparkle into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And as always, thank
1: you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you all next year in February. (music) Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.